1: Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Job, chapter 1.
0: Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, not Oz, Uz, whose name was Job. That man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Now, Uz, there's a number of Uz's in the Scripture, son of Shem, son of Noah. Uh, there was a land of, king, it was the land of kings in Jeremiah's day, in Jeremiah 25. But also, Uz was also a neighbor of Edom. And uh, you know, some scholars believe that Uz was a, in, in the Bashan area, the Golan Heights area, uh, south of Damascus. Others, that it was Edom southeast of the Dead Sea. Others, and I think this is the way I lean for a lot of reasons, they believe it was east of Edom in northern Arabia. This, most of this, I believe, happened in northern Arabia, and uh, this last view is supported by the fact that Job lived in the desert region. Is, well, yet the land was fertile for livestock and agriculture. The customs, vocabulary, and the geography all relate to Northern Arabia so much so that that, to me, is the, the, the scholastically most justifiable conjecture as to actual location. Job was apparently one of the most prominent citizens in whatever region that is. And that's really what we're getting into. It says he was perfect. The word is Tom, which means upright, sincere, without guile. He was blameless, not sinless. Not saying he was sinless, but he was blameless and he knew how to deal with his sin. He knew how to handle his sin. He does sacrifices and so forth. But we do see portrayed for us a complete, well-balanced man that feared God. And uh, that, in fact, if you don't yield to that point, if you don't really understand that Job was blameless, you'll miss the point of most of the discussion. As his friends try to probe and pin all his troubles on his shortcomings. Verse 2. We're getting, making progress. Let's see. We made one verse in 20 minutes. We, no, it'll be all right. Okay. Verse 2. And there were born unto him seven sons, excuse me, yeah, seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was, get this, the greatest of all the men of the East. Very prosperous guy. It's interesting that riches are not necessarily evil. Here's a good guy, one of the best in the land. He also happened to be the richest in the land, and uh, one of the richest. And uh, so that's a key point here. In verse 3, we have a list of the camels, the oxen, and so forth. That list is going to turn out to be very important for us. By the time we get to the end of the book, that list is going to reveal to you a surprise. A surprise that will prove, I believe, to be of great comfort. A comfort that most people miss. That is probably one of the most important comforts that you may experience in your life. And I'll I'll leave it there until we get to chapter 42 and get into all that, but be be ready for that. This closes with the phrase, the men of the east. That term, and he was usually associated with uh, the tribe of Kedar in northern parts of Arabia. It's uh, that area that you and I would know as Kuwait, incidentally. Not a big deal in passing. Verse 4, and his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day and sent and called for the three sisters to eat and to drink with them. Now his sons, he has seven sons, What most Scholars infer what they mean here. They feasted on their birthday. Each one Each one of the sons had a special day and they were having a feast and and each each one had a unique time and the three sisters went to eat and drink with them. Uh, We're going to discover fatherly concern. We're going to discover that Job was a family guy. Verse 5. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about and Job sent and sanctified them. He rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. He's a man. Here's a a guy who is a man of prayer. Very rich, very wealthy, very prosperous, a neat guy. But one of the focuses that we have on him, he's a man of prayer. In fact, one of his concerns is that his children may have inadvertently cursed God in their hearts. And uh, because of that, he... uh, he, uh, offered special prayers for them. This this idea of cursing God in your heart is going to emerge as one of the key themes in this book. And Job also, I think, recognized that your greatest spiritual challenge can be when things are going well. Often our greatest spiritual growth is when things are rough. You know, it's it's when things are really tough that we turn to God. Maybe that's why he brings toughness into our lives. It's the only time he hears from us. Why don't you call? (laughs) One of our biggest challenges can be when things are well, when prosperous and the market's up and got this promotion and everything's going great. Watch out. Watch out. That's when you can be tested uh, in the greatest uh, way possible. This speaks of a burnt offering. A burnt offering from our study in Leviticus, you may recall the burnt offering was the one that spoke of total dedication to God. And in effect, the, the, the recognition of God's rightful ownership of men and women. So the burnt offering is mentioned here as a practice that he did. I think the burnt offering is not just a, is not a mosaic offering. It was, a, it, I believe, was the offering in Eden from the beginning, but we'll move on here. And so here's Job, a godly man, a landowner, and a good father. In fact, everything that you can sort of explore about Job, you'll discover he's got a great—he's got straight A's in his report card. He's a good guy. That's the point. That—that's the premise that underlies the whole book, and it's very important to understand that right up front. So those are the first five verses sets us up. We know who he was, where he lived, what he had. He's wealthy. Everything is look. Oh, Peachy keen. And then we get to verse 6, which opens up the dark side, in a sense. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Now here we have a very key technical term, a term that is used consistently throughout the Old Testament to refer to angels, the bene ha-elohim. Which means the sons of God. What that term implies is a direct creation of God. A direct creation of God. And therefore that term is used uh, quite broadly of angels. we got a scene shift that occurred here in verse 6. We've shifted from the earth with its camels and wealth and whatever into heaven. This is a scene shift that probably is dra- uh, uh, dramatized by Elisha's servant. You may recall in 2 Kings 6, when uh, Elisha and his servant are surrounded by the Syrian army. And uh, they're all out there. And the servant gets up in the morning and sees them, realizes they're surrounded. He's frightened. He's terrified. These are the enemy. He goes to Elisha and says, Elisha, we're, we're surrounded. Elisha says, relax, those that are with us are more than they were them. The servant says in effect, wait, I can hear them revving their engines. They're there, they're real. And Elisha, almost out of exasperation, turns to the Lord and says, Lord, open his eyes so he can really see. And the servant looks out and he sees that they surrounded, they themselves were surrounded with chariots of fire. Elisha's servant was given this glimpse into this other dimensionality. That Elisha, of course, understood that they were well protected. We see a similar kind of glimpse into the spiritual reality in Daniel chapter ten, where Daniel is fasting and praying, and for twenty-one days, and this this messenger comes and explains that he'd been sent when he started fasting twenty-one days ago. He was sent, but it took him twenty-one days to fight his way through this demon demonic world to get through, and and the prince of the power of Persia was against him until Michael came to help him and. And he's come through, when I give you my, give you the next two chapters of prophecy, chapters 11 and 12 of Daniel, I gotta go back and fight him, and then also the Prince of Greece shortly. Greece Greece came after 200 years after Persia. But he's not talking about the kings, he's talking about the spirit powers behind those empires. And and of course, in Revelation 4, we get another glimpse like that when John is caught up there. So we have this, we're moving into this strange reality. Nachmanides, the ancient Hebrew um, sage in the 12th century, in his commentary on Genesis, concluded from the text of Genesis 1 that the universe has ten dimensions, but only four are knowable by by ourselves; and six are not knowable. And that's very curious because today, particle physicists with their billion-dollar atomic accelerators have determined that we live in ten dimensions—not not the three that were spatial dimensions we're familiar with, the length, width, height. There's a fourth called time. Those four dimensions we can measure; the other six. We know we're there by a number of ways, but we can't measure the, the curl in less than 10 to the minus 35 centimeters, so we can only infer them by indirect means. I find that fascinating because they've discovered, finally, today, what Nachmanides learned by studying the text carefully. But it's interesting, too, because I suspect, this is just a conjecture, but I throw it out for your consideration. I think the original universe prior to Genesis 3 was a 10-dimensional universe, and the result of Adam's sin was to split that the four that we're left with are the four that we experience. The other six are hidden from us. And we call those the spiritual realm. I think much of these things are hyper-dimensional, more so than the dimensions. That's all a possibility. We spent a lot of time on that. But the main point is, the direct creations of God are angels and also Adam. Luke, in his genealogy, when he gets to Adam, says Adam was a son of God. He was a, Adam was a direct creation of God. You and I are not... Direct creations of God were sons of Adam, not sons of God, in the natural. How do we come, direct creations of God? In John, this is very. The Holy Spirit designed this whole book, sixty-six books by forty different guys over thousands of years, but it's one book by the, it's, uh, with its origin outside our our uh, our spaces, our hyperspaces. Um, in John, chapter one. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become what? The sons of God. You see, you and I are the subject of a new creation when that happens. We don't see anything, we don't feel anything necessarily. There may be some change. There better be some changes in your life. There should be some evidence of it. But still, the point is the the uh, new birth, as we call it, being born again is an idiom that we use for what? That new creation. You are a new cre- creature in Christ. You are then a son of God, a direct creation of God. No longer a son of Adam, son of God. And uh, those idioms are not just uh, figures of speech. They they reveal a very very profound dynamic in our in our uh, situation. So. This whole idea of the Benaiah Elohim becomes very important when you get to Genesis chapter 6 because it's the reason for the flood of Noah. Why did the flood come? Because some of these angels, fallen angels, attempted to create hybrids called the Nephilim, the fallen ones. And they're embodied in all the ancient myths of all the ancient cultures. And uh, because of the contamination of the human genome, we have... uh, uh, you, can, you can call that a form of genetic engineering if you like, uh, God had a problem. Because that was that's why Satan did it, to try to contaminate the human race to prevent the Messiah, the Redeemer being born. And that's why God sent the flood. And if you study Genesis 6, there's plenty of materials on that. Uh, that's the That was the ancient understanding of the ancient rabbis. It's also the understanding of the early church. Some other uh, uh, theories came up in the 5th century that are commonly taught in seminaries today that have one only one problem with them, they have no scriptural support. The lines of Seth issue and all that. I won't get into all that here. But that's all bodied in that phrase, Son of God, and, and our confidence in our understanding of it come largely from the book of Job, some of the way these words are used. Now there's another thing to understand from verse 6, and that is that Satan has access to heaven. God's got a, a meeting going on here and all the angels come including Satan. Satan's an angel. He's one of the he was the he was appointed originally in charge of them all. He was he was the anointed cherub that covered. he's a cherubim, which is a super kind of angel. And he was the one that was in charge of all the rest. We understand from a from uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 among other places. So he has access to heaven. The day will come we from scripture when he's kicked out. He isn't kicked out yet. He has access. What does he do up there? Accuses us. He's up there as a tattletale Lord did you see what they did you see what he just did now you don't have to worry about that if in Christ because we also have a defense counsel who happens to be the son of the of the boss and he what does he do what's jesus doing today he's up there every day interceding in prayer for you and I that's a prayer partner I have but satan's there he's the accuser that's what the word really means our adversary our accuser that's what the term means that's his role that's his nasty vicious mission. He has both access to heaven and he has a mission that's adverse to you and I, a mission of accusation. And when you find someone that makes his living accusing the brethren, you know where that doctrine comes from. Be careful. Let's go to verse 7. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? And where have you been? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. Kind of interesting. The Lord says, "Satan, where have you been? I've been down on the earth." I always wonder when I hear that. Is there other places you could have been to? Are there other planets you could be wandering around? I don't know. I'm not suggesting he does. I just, you know, it's interesting. Where have you been? Well, I was in the earth, wandering around, looking, checking things out, walking up and down in it. Satan is doing that right now. Peter, in his first letter, chapter five, verse eight, says. Warns us, be sober and be vigilant, because, why? Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He's out to get you. Chuck, you're making a boogeyman speech. Yes, I am. It sounds like you're scared of him. But for Christ, I would be. I mean, yeah, but for Christ, I, I, I don't have to be, is what I'm trying to get across. I'm up that line a little bit. You get, yeah, I think you don't i to try to say it. Ephesians chapter four. Paul tells us, "Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Neither give place to the devil." Interesting. You're upset with your wife, or your wife's upset with you. Don't let the sun go down on that wrath. Why? Because it gives Satan an opportunity. Satan opportunity. I, I'm indebted to my wife because often I'm very moody and I'm I'm I'm. You don't see that side of me. I give you my best face, but she tells you the real truth about it. Read her book, she'll tell you. Uh, I can be awful. But she doesn't let us go to bed with a chip on her shoulder about whatever, some stupid thing that's got me off. off today. She virtually forces us to say, wait a minute, let's straighten this up. before. Let's not let the sun go down on our wrath, if you want to call it that. For lots of reasons, not the least of which is we don't want to give place to the devil. That's where Satan has a field day. Anytime husband and wife are at odds, Satan's got an opportunity. And he'll take care of it, take advantage of it. Praise God for my the incredible woman God has given me that really understands that. In fact, in Ephesians six we have an elaboration of this where Paul tells you, be, you know, be strong in the Lord, put on the armor of God. Why? For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and so forth. Those are ranks of angels in the Greek, those terms. We wrestle against uh, rulers of darkness, and he's not talking about our political structure. He's talking about the, the, uh, the hosts of Satan. Remember when the uh, Lord said, he, he said to Peter, that uh, Satan's desired to sift you as wheat, but I prayed not that you wouldn't w- wouldn't fail, or not that you wouldn't fall, but your faith fail not. He didn't pray that Peter wouldn't fall, he prayed that his faith fail not. Interesting. Interesting to study that. Anyway, let's move on. Ber- verse 8. The Lord said unto Satan, See, he's called all things together. Satan said, Hey, where have you been, Satan? I've been running around checking out things on the earth. Lord says, "Have you?" Con- Lord challenges Satan. Notice the challenge does not come from Satan. The challenge comes from the Lord. He challenges Satan. Have you checked out my servant Job? You almost can see the Lord's thumb under suspenders here. You know, this is, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and is true evil. Listen, God here is endorsing Job. You want to join Job's three friends and say, well, he must have been sinning, or he did this, or he did that. Hey, God gives he gives you his report card in verse 8. There's none like him on the earth. Certainly not Chuck Missler. <laughs> because Job is a perfect, upright man, one that feareth God and is true evil. None like him in the earth. Job's report card is the key to the rest of the book. If you don't really... Understand that you'll miss most of what goes on. You'll lose the whole point of the righteousness of if the righteousness of Job is in any way tarnished, if it is in any way blemished. Uh, it, it, the whole point of this book will lose its impact. See, don't we reap what we sow? Where justice ends, love begins. That's part of what this book is all about, as you'll see before it's all over. And Job's friends are all wrong in this point. In the discourses that occur with his three friends, These extensive, dis- each one's going to have about three cracks at Job and there's three friends, there's quite a few discourses. Each one is wrong. It sounds great, some tremendous arguments, they're all wrong because they are wrong about this point. See, what makes this collision of viewpoints that make up these, uh, the coming uh, uh, discourses so dramatic, is the soundness of their arguments. They're cogent, but they're wrong. If they were frail arguments, they'd fall apart. This wouldn't, this wouldn't be a piece of literature. Their arguments are sound. They're real, except they're wrong. You can have very persuasive arguments that stand the test of scholarship that are still wrong, the wrong contrary to the Word of God. But notice right up here as we get going here, it's God that's challenging Satan, not the other way around. Verse 9. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? In other words, yeah, no wonder he's right because you just spoiled him. He's rich. He's got all this neat stuff. Take all that away from him. You know, that's sort of the flavor. Now Satan's going to, you know, set up a test here, in effect. See, Satan's premise is that Job is only after his own self-interest. He worships God for his own welfare. By the way, I don't see anything wrong with that. (laughs) You know, I worship God because I'm better off doing that. I know that I am, I admit it. But see, Satan's premise is that Job's doing it only for his self interest. And this is the ultimate question for each one of us. See, we, we, we see Satan's cynical um, premise uh, underlying all this. Is worship a coin that buys only, that only, you spend only for a heavenly reward? Is piety to God a contract? I do it because it's going to, you know. Will Job serve God if he gets nothing in return? That's sort of the implied question here. We're talking about real worship instead of just thanksgiving. Now the attack here that Satan is attacking will attack the integrity of God. And uh, because Satan is accusing God of rigging the rules. Rigging the rules. You know, it's astonishing to realize how many fundamental theological premises prevalent today attack the character of God. I'll give you two, just to, I I think with, with two, I can offend everybody. So they're probably. You know, it only takes a couple to get just about everybody here. First one is amillennialism. Most denominations, Catholic and Protestant both, are amillennial in their eschatology. Well, yes, the Lord's coming back, but he rules in our hearts. I mean, a real millennium of a thousand years. Come on, get serious. They disparage the idea of a real millennium. That's what they're called amillennialism. There isn't really a millennium. That's just symbolic language. It sounds good until you realize that it's making God a liar. Because all through the Old Testament, beyond little check verses, all through the Old Testament, God hammers away. 1,845 times promises, talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ coming to rule on the earth. The babe at Bethlehem is going to take the throne of David. He never has yet. The throne of David is a, a, an earthly political throne. That's what it means. Not, God's, he's not on David's throne now. He's on his father's throne. He's out of place. He's going to take David's throne. Amillennialism. It's not just a different viewpoint of prophecy. It's a fundamental concept of what the Bible is all about. God means what he says and says what he means. And throughout the Old and New Testament, he talks about this. To deny it is a way of attacking the character of God. Let me get even more offensive to some of you. Calvinism is another one. Dave Hunt, who I respect, very controversial, but I respect very highly, has got a new book coming out. Uh, I've got a manuscript. He's asked me to endorse it, which I have. I'll be, my endorsement will be on the cover. His title of the book is What Love Is This? Subtitle Calvinism's Misrepresentation of the Character of God. Whew. Ooh. That's a debate that's going on for a lot of time. So, what's, what's, what's new here? So, you don't have just two choices Calvinism, Arminianism. Those are just two. That's the way it's been couched. No, there's much more to it than that. And David will attack that. We won't hear. But the point is be careful. Be careful not to attack the entire... God means what He says and says what He means, and when you stay there, you're protected. You start wandering around in some of these these uh, hmm, viewpoints, uh, you can get in trouble fast. I love... Just, uh, just this weekend, I had a wonderful... I had a guy drive six hours from Colorado Springs to come and spend a few hours on Saturday. We had a wonderful time. Uh, I won't get into more of the details, except he highlights something that Rademacher said. Uh, we both know him. He's a neat guy, a neat theologian. He says we're talking about what biblical theology is. Hopefully, that's what you and I are doing: is biblical theology. What is biblical theology? That's the theology that lines between the exegesis, what the text really says, and systematic theology. <laughs> in other words, it's, it's the real. It's so often we get in, we, we systematize it and then we impose that system on whatever we find. Now set that aside. With, let's see what the, Let's let's just follow what the text says, and it'll keep us out of trouble. Well, anyway, God is going to use Job to silence Satan. And as he does this, he's also going to deepen Job's own spiritual insight. And as he does so, he'll deepen yours and mine. So, so And Job will be blessed doubly for, for enduring all of this. Any of you who have worked in a forge and so forth know that metal has no strength until it's tempered.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org.